by coming across as clearly elitist and rejecting populism, did the Democratic Party really create Trumpism? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When you hear the word populism, what's your reaction? Despite the remarkably successful co-optation of the word by the Trumpists, the real story of populism is the story of American democracy itself, its ever-widening promise of a decent life for all. And what was once clearly a party of this great American potential, the Democrats, instead has morphed into presenting itself as the party of elitism. The price paid for that new stance has been the rise of Trumpism. Our guest today, author Thomas Frank, in his new book, The People Know, so shows that elitist groups have reliably detested populism, lashing out at working class concerns. And I would argue that uh, continued elitism by the Democrats is a sure way to keep losing. Now, with the rejection of Trump, this might be a unique learning opportunity. The shock of 70 million people voting for Trump apparently has the result of the National Party once again looking down their noses at the stupid rural rabble. As we tragically let the side that supported our war in Vietnam own the American flag, now Democrats have yielded populism to the far right. Instead of listening, we scold. Well, as a Democrat, I for one am not willing to hand over our working class base on a silver platter to the authoritarians who put on the costume of populism. After reading his new book, The People Know, I believe uh, our guest Thomas Frank shares my sentiment. He, of course, is the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and Listen Liberal. So what is populism? Is it, by definition, the property of the far right? Sure, we ousted Trump, but with the major setbacks in so many congressional and gubernatorial races, is the way to go now to once again shun any boldness on the part of Democratic candidates and yet again cling tightly to some imagined safe middle of the road. Or perhaps the 2020s present an opportunity to turn away from the elitism which the National Democratic Party embraced in the 1990s. If we dare to expand the choice beyond elitist liberal or authoritarian right wing, what's left? According to our guest, populism is the most important and misunderstood movement of our time. In his new book, The People Know, Thomas Frank takes us through the uniquely American version of populism, which, despite its current manifestation, holds out hope of a new electoral majority, if the Democratic Party can get out of its own way, which I'm dubious about. So let's start with how you came up with the title, The People Know, and thanks for being with us, Thomas Frank. How'd you come up with that title? Thank you, Bert Cohen. It's, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me back on. I've been on your show before, right? Oh, yes, you have. More than once, if I remember, right? Uh, yeah, maybe. I've done... Few hundred. Huh. Anyway, so how did you come up with the title? The people know. The title is a the title is you know a literary reference. I love that sort of thing, 
it's a reference to uh, Carl. San- do you remember Carl Sandburg? I mean, not of not course. many people do anymore. But it, so oh. I used to live in Chicago, and he's kind of um, a local hero in in Chicago. He was the a poet yes. uh, in the first half of the twentieth century. Uh, you know, they they used to call him the people's poet, kind of an heir to Walt Whitman. Uh-huh. You know, he liked to write about uh, ordinary people and uh, the way they talked, sort of American vernacular. And uh, uh, he wrote a book length, kind of an epic poem about the common man called uh, "The People." Yes, uh-huh. and it came it came out in 1936. <laughs> you know, at the sort of height. Sure. Of of uh, the what you know of of the decade of the common man, the proletarian decade, mm-hmm. uh, you know when everybody from you know, Frank Capra to the WPA was celebrating, you know the the average American, yes. and Carl Sandburg wrote one of the all time classics of that genre, and uh, you know and it's a it's always been a favorite of mine, and it just seems to me that we're living in a time where they, you know, our, our attitudes are so different than what they were in those days. Uh, in that time when everybody celebrated the wisdom of ordinary Americans today, it's, you know, we do the opposite. We, you know, we, we sort of dream of the day when, when average people are forced to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm not kidding, by the way, There's oh, like a, the, the book starts with a whole, as you know, starts with the whole, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of drum roll of this anti-populist literature that's been produced over the last four years, uh, well, longer than that, but mainly in reaction to the rise of Donald Trump. Right. Uh, all of these American pundits and thinkers who deplore uh, the common man, you know, the ordinary American. Mm. Boy, that used to be different. I, I've been a Democrat all my life, and largely because we were for the common person, you know, a common man pre feminism but uh it, 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 it's, yeah it's just an expression of yeah, course we of course. update it now but oh, it, yeah. i'm using the 30s the, the sort of 1930s oh, yeah. way of uh and a lot can be learned from the 1930s it's an amazing period and today populism is seen as a frightening thing a serious threat to democracy but as, as you write the word is a one-word evocation of the logic of the mob it is the people as a great rampaging beast so they want them the to beast. Shoot. Yes. Well, that's an image from Alexander Hamilton. Actually. Oh, right. So the, the founding fathers were not, uh, with the exception of Jefferson, the founding fathers were not big fans of democracy. And you could sure. even say Jefferson wasn't really either, but he said he was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, uh, he, but with him accepted, the founding fathers did not, uh, trust uh, the you know the great mass of Americans. Oh, sure. They came up with all of these sort of, um, as we know to our great cost, they came up with all of these sort of techniques and mechanisms to keep the popular uh, will, you know, to keep the to keep democracy at bay. So you've got. Uh, the U.S. Senate, which used to be chosen by state legislatures, you've got the Supreme Court, you've got, of course, the Electoral College, uh, various other mechanisms that they came up with. Um, and you, you, back then, of course, uh, ordinary people could not vote. There was a property qualification. Oh, yeah. You had to own a certain amount of land. And um, I think you had to be a white uh, man, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and yeah, and that that didn't change for a long time. That's actually a big part of the story of populism, uh, both good and bad. The populists were um, were uh, huge supporters of the right of women to vote. They were the first political party to support that, you know, or large political party, I should say. And they actually 
uh, secured that. You know, I should probably not go on about this because your listeners don't even know who the populists were yet. I haven't said. Oh, that's true. Well, I was going to ask about the 1890s. We've heard of William Jennings Bryan. I don't think anybody knows what the Cross of Gold speech was about. I've read about it, so I know. But that's when it was really happening. Tell us, if you would, please, about similarities between the economic arrangements of power in the 1890s and today. What do both eras share in terms of economic inequality and frustration over the locus of political power? What what was then and is now the realm of ordinary people? So the 1890s, yeah, the populism. I mean, part. that is a wonder, wonderful question uh, because the word populism was invented in the 1890s. Um, it was, we actually, I, I did a little research on it and I was able to, to discover pretty precisely uh, where it, the word was invented and who invented it. I mean, we actually know the people's names who are in the conversation when they came up with the, with the word populism. And uh, it was a nickname for a third-party movement that was big out on the Great Plains. So I'm from Kansas originally, so this, uh, is, a, you know, this is a part of our local history there. And uh, that's where the word was, was, was invented, was on a train between Kansas City and Topeka. And it was uh, the, the party that they were describing, the populist party, was a, a left-wing farmer labor party that was rising up in a period of sort of extreme economic inequality. Right. So these are the early days, uh, the golden days, if you will, of modern industrial capitalism. You know, you've got um, – America is industrializing. The railroads have been built all over the country, uh, and the you know what we think of as a modern economy was 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 getting up and running. But uh, we didn't you know uh, there was no pretense of it being fair. Um, this was a time when uh, you know workers were routinely well people would starve and workers would be injured on the job and uh, they'd be paid starvation wages and there was no recourse for anyone and farmers were watching as their what they grew was slowly but surely bid down to the point where it was it, it was you know it made more sense for them to burn the corn that they grew in the, in the stove than it did to try to sell it. Um, and uh, <laughs> this was uh, a lot of it was a result of railroad monopoly. So anyhow, the populists uh, came up as a protest movement against those conditions, the sort of early industrial conditions. And it was a time the 1890s was a time of extraordinary inequality, yes, both in income and in wealth. You know, this is when you first have, you know, people who are being called millionaires. Uh, are rising up. I think you have the, the first billionaire comes along a short while later, John D. Rockefeller. But the wow. 1890s are when Ro- Rockefeller is really making his name. Uh, you know, you've got uh, the, the Vanderbilts and the Astors in New York City. The Vanderbilts own, you know, the biggest, the most important railroad in America. Mm-hmm. All of these monopolists, uh, monopoly power is totally unchecked by the government. The government doesn't do anything to stop um, these incredibly powerful corporations. And so you've got inequality, monopoly power, and political corruption. And these three things go hand in hand. The political corruption is um, in the 1890s was in your face. They boasted about it. Um, Railroads, especially this is especially true out in the Western states, railroads would routinely uh, bribe entire state legislatures using um they would give legislators free tickets on the railroad 
you know, to go wherever they wanted in the country. And uh, they would be able to get whoever they wanted named to the U.S. Senate, this kind of thing. The Vanderbilts actually got their personal lawyer um, made <laughs> into a U.S. US senator. <laughs> but they, they did stuff like this all the time. And here's the thing, Bert. It's exactly the same today. It's like we learned all those lessons in the 1890s, and then slowly but surely, in our own time, we forgot them. Oh yeah. And we're back to we're back to where they were. We have extreme inequality of wealth and income. Uh, we have monopoly power that John D. Rockefeller could never even have dreamed of. I'm referring to Silicon Valley. You know, not only do they have monopoly power, they they spy on us. You know. They surveil us all the time in order <laughs> in order to sell us stuff. And we have, of course, political corruption. I mean, Citizens United made it basically uh, so that bribery is legal in America. You have to follow some some basic rules, but uh, essentially, if you follow those rules, yeah, bribery is is legal again. And uh, I mean, it, it's 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 extraordinary. And uh, we could really use another populist movement to rise up and challenge these things. But unfortunately we're still going the other, the wrong direction, but we're still like, we use populism as an epithet. Yes. You know, we denounce people who want to, <laughs> who want to rein in those forces. Uh, we say it's mob rule, mm. you know, it's Trumpism or something like that. The, the mob rule, it, you got to mistrust the mob. And, and you mentioned a, uh, a novella written in 1901, uh, where the author uh, seemed to kick off anti-populism. He described what populism looked like. He said, people with reason were in disfavor, losers prospered, the learned were ignored, professionals were replaced by cranks. There was fear of the undereducated class being in power who fall for demagogues against the enlightened few how, who know how things should be run. And I, yep. want, I wonder how that relates to the current leadership. Well, of the people, people say the exact same thing today. That's what's that's what's crazy. So that was a novella written by William Allen White, who was a newspaper man from Kansas. He was a good writer, but he really had he was really he had his head on backwards in those days, and he hated um, the idea of working class people, which is what farmers were, coming together in a mass movement to demand um, a fair economy and to demand an end to political corruption. He hated that. And he said, you know, that's mob rule. That is the, the, the most unfit members of the community trying to boss around the, uh, you know, the natural rulers of mankind, the people who are highly educated and come from the good families and so on and so forth. And he, and he also said it was a form of, uh, of demagoguery, that, that any kind of mass reform movement like this was, was, it was like hypnotism. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't just making this stuff up. He got it from the big, big social theorists of that day. They were extremely conservative. You know, the, the great economists of that period looked at populism and said this is a movement of cranks. They don't know what they're talking about because it's not, you know, classical economics. And the great sort of social scientists of the day looked at populism and said this is mob rule. You know, this is the French Revolution uh, come to America, this, this, this reform movement. You know, and, and that's that was that's what they said about this reform movement then. And that is what um, people say today. They still use that this argument today when they, they use the word populism. That's what they mean. They're referring to that that stereotype that was built in the 1890s. 
Oh, for sure. And and people are afraid of mob rule. And certainly Hamilton, as popular as the play is, he was very anti-democratic. And I, I always thought, you know, at least in theory, Americans like democracy. We pretend to. And, I think uh, we really do, though, Bert. I think it's sincere. Yeah. We, we're the most democratic people in the world. Uh, I mean, we don't we. Uh, you know, we our electoral system has a lot to answer for, as we as we've all seen in the last few weeks here. But the uh, the, the 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 sort of anti elitist sentiment, the suspicion of hierarchy, uh, of people putting on airs, the hatred of aristocracy, that is who we are. I don't know of any other people on the planet who are even in the same league as us with regard to those things. I mean, we are. We are populists by <clears throat> by our nature, I think, um, and it's it is it is crazy to me that that our sort of leadership class in this country has been able to suppress uh, you know the kind of reform movements that we need to have in this country for so long and so effectively, you know, to the point where the only reform movement that you that you get is this kind of crazy whack job, you know, um, upside down fake, you know, this fraud. Uh, I'm referring to uh, President Donald Trump, <laughs> as as you guessed. Yeah, and I, I wonder, you know, about uh, what the what the populists uh, of 1890s accomplished. They didn't win. They did not win. But there were things that came out of that that uh, that have lasted, right? I mean, they, they yeah. were crushed. But what did they what did they accomplish? Yeah. So it's, I mean, look, starting a third party movement is tough, Very tough at yes. any time. This was, and this was the last time uh, that it was done successfully. And what I mean by successfully is it wasn't just, you know, Ross Perot running for president. It was a real political party from the top to the bottom. Uh, it did run a candidate for president, but it also, <clears throat> they, they, they got U.S. senators elected. They had members of Congress. They had governors. They had mayors. Um, what state are you in, by the way? You're in you're in Vermont, right? Well, New Hampshire. It's to the right of Vermont. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm so sorry. That's all right. um, yeah, the, the only part of the country where they weren't where they didn't really uh, contest uh, was was the Northeast, yeah. is where you are right now. Sure. But they were you know in Kansas they elected more than one governor, uh, you know several senators, lots of representatives, and and that that was true all over the West and also also in the South. Um, and that's the last time anybody tried it. Now they they didn't last long. Uh, they fell apart. They they basically got started in the year 1890, sort of burst onto the national scene in 1890, and by 1898 they were all but dead. They were basically wiped out. So that's a, yeah. about uh, seven or eight, seven or eight years. But the funny thing is, if you go back and look at the causes that they believed in, and they were you know they they wrote they loved to write manifestos, the populists. Yeah. <laughs> issue these platforms every couple of years, and if you go back and look at what they uh, what they stood for, almost everything on their um, in their manifestos ha was accomplished, you know, in the 1930s or uh -huh. 40s or 50s. So yeah, they wanted. I mean, the three big ones were they wanted a federal farm program, uh, you know, which we we got mm -hmm. under the New Deal under mm -hmm. Roosevelt. They wanted to uh, take the U.S. off the gold standard, mm -hmm. which we also did when Roosevelt was president. Mm -hmm. And they uh, they wanted to uh, basically they wanted the government to go after monopolies. But uh, the the worst monopoly in their mind was railroads, and yes. they wanted the government to just nationalize the railroads. Now that never 
quite happened. Uh, I mean, uh, but we did regulate the railroads and we, you know, to prevent them from doing the kind of things that the populists uh, claimed they were doing. I mean, they were doing, they were, you know, they were monopolies. They all, the populists also wanted a bunch of electoral reforms to sort of crack down on corruption. So they wanted the secret ballot, which we got. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to the direct election of senators. So in the old days, senators were chosen by a state legislature. Right. And now, you know, we do it the populist way. We elect them ourselves. Directly. And they also, they wanted votes for women, which of course we got. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, what's funny is this is a group that lost and, you know, didn't last very long and failed uh, during their during their own lifetimes. But within 40 years, almost everything they wanted uh, had been enacted. And so they have, a, they have an amazing record. <laughs> you know, everything, all of their reforms eventually came to pass. And the, the, the real punchline here, Bert, is that they were – populists were so hated by the elite of their day – for proposing these things that were, so, that, that were like, you know, supposed to be crank measures, you know, right. taking us off the gold standard and stuff. And we now know these are all, these are things that you have to do to run a, you know, to run uh, a, a complex, you know, middle-class society like ours or like ours used to be. Used to be, you know, yeah. It, it, so they, they actually turned out to be, uh, you know, pretty up-to-date, pretty modern. It's funny, the cranks were right and the experts were wrong. Uh, yes. Well, now we hear people saying the hippies are right, and I think that's largely true, <laughs> I must say. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping... I, I don't know, Bert. I, I never liked those drum solos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so every, you know, everybody can get a bit uh, uh, self-indulgent from time to time, that's for sure. It did happen. Yeah. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, returning guest, is Thomas Frank author of What's the Matter with Kansas, new book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. And the cover is of a, a, a pinstripe suit foot coming down, about to crush a little guy. Uh, and you know, I, I, FDR, we've talked about FDR. And, you know, one can certainly understand why Republicans have, su have sought ever since the time of FDR to destroy every aspect of the New Deal. What I don't yeah. understand is why the Democratic Party has also run away from that amazingly popular and successful era. And we talked a little bit about how the New Deal related to populist solutions and yeah. how it fit the national mood. I, I wonder if populist remedies of that time are still applicable. Your thoughts? Well, I think they are. Uh, of course, but you're, you know, you're asking the guy who really, I mean, I have a little... I have a bust of Franklin Roosevelt right here on my shelf. I mean, you're asking the guy who's uh, he's, he's one of my my personal heroes, um, you know, the greatest president ever, in, in my opinion. You know, Roosevelt came into office confronting the Great Depression and took bold action. I mean, really unprecedented bold action, shattered norms, uh, brought in all sorts of 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 you know, people with unusual ideas into government was very experimental, tried all kinds of different things, found the things that worked and did them, and basically laid the foundations for America becoming uh, the, the great middle class society that, that you and I grew up in, uh, basically a, a social democracy in everything but name. And that, that was, you know, that was Franklin Roosevelt basically taking the old uh, agenda of the populists and also taking the rhetoric of the populists and, and ruling this country in that way. Uh, and it was, I mean, the 1930s were 
one of the important points that you got to remember about the, the American sort of populist tradition is that it's not only about leaders. You know, it's 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 important to have great people like Franklin Roosevelt leading a major political party, but that's very unusual. Uh, it's uh, it's also important to have mass movements. And in the 1930s, when Roosevelt was in the Oval Office, you also had uh, organized labor, which was growing by leaps and bounds, tripled in size in the course of the 1930s, and had a presence everywhere, or at least in the northern states, had a presence everywhere, uh, You know, and was really reforming this country. And at the same time, you also had a kind of cultural populism. Uh, that was that was going on. We talked about Carl Sandburg a little while ago, but it's also the, this is the heyday of sort of Frank Capra, you know, Hollywood movies celebrating ordinary Americans. You know, you think of all those World War II movies. You know, even World War II, the sort of pop culture of World War II, it was all about the average soldiers, not about the generals, not about the officers, always about the enlisted men. You think of Willie and Joe. You know, the great, the cartoon, what was the cartoonist's name? Bill Malden. Remember? Well, anyhow, of course, you, <laughs> neither of us are old enough to remember that. But, but uh, it was the heyday of this kind of culture. And, uh, uh, and, and yeah, the things that Franklin Roosevelt did, you know, reformed this economy and made the middle class society possible. And you're absolutely right that Democrats have turned away from that legacy. Uh, and I'm not saying that as a tendentious, you know, or argumentative, uh, uh, you know, sort of talking point. This is something that Democrats themselves said all the time in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. This is what, if you go back and read um, biographies of Bill Clinton, um, the, the kind of biographies where they think Bill Clinton is a hero, that's why they think he's a hero, because he turned uh, the Democratic Party away from the New Deal. That's the heroic behavior. I'm the guy that says, no, that was an enormous mistake. And the Democratic Party has been paying for it ever since. And the, the whole country is paying for it now. In the 1990s, they turned away from the working people. My only guess is they did that because there was easy money on Wall Street. But they, they gave up on that. And I think I'm getting the sense that, and the, the clear elitism projected by our 2016 nominee, pushed your average person away. And I'm wondering what what have ordinary people seen and experienced by the rule of the so-called experts? I wonder if yeah. how this affected the rise of Trump. Oh, well, it's in my opinion what this 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 whole big change that we're talking about Bill Clinton giving up on the new deal, moving away from it and sort of reimagining the Democratic Party. This was a colossal mistake Yes, um, that the, the party still hasn't really come to terms with uh, that, that, you know, that this was that they made a that they made a bad error. I mean, the people who were in charge of that and who pushed that they're they're still in charge. They're still running the Democratic Party, that sort of faction of the And they just got their man elected uh, president. Right. He's right now naming uh, yet another uh, bunch of this kind of Democrat to the mm-hmm. to the cabinet. But. Yes, turning their backs uh, on ordinary Americans is exactly what they proceeded to do. Uh, and Bill Clinton uh, reached out to Wall Street. This was regarded as genius politics at yeah. the time. He reached out to Wall Street and uh, 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 you know befriended them. Was the first Democrat to do this uh, in a hundred years. You know, since the days of William Jennings Bryan, and he um, was able to raise an enormous amount of money from them. And to 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 I mean. 
the party has never really looked back. Uh, Barack Obama outraised uh, uh, who was it? It was John McCain in 2008. Outraised him in uh, contributions from Wall Street, and Joe Biden just uh, well Hillary did the same, and Joe Biden just massively outraised Donald Trump in Wall Street campaign donations, and also from nearly every other industry as well, with the exception of big oil. So what you see is that the Democratic Party has. Um, I mean, I'm 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 glossing over a lot of <clears throat> details here, but that the Democratic Party is is sort of switching what it's what it stood for, what it stands for, you know, instead of being the party of the people right. with this sort of populist Rooseveltian heritage, it's the party of this sort of uh, elite class, this sort of white collar class and that, so, uh, you know, is well, you know, this, 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 the suburban affluent white collar uh, people that everybody is talking about uh, and that Biden won so handily in the last, uh, just a few weeks ago. So what choice did the did the average working person have, the per- people who used to be with the Democratic Farm Labor Party and, and the Midwest? What options did they have at that point other than perhaps go with something different? Because they were not pleased. Did, did it, I wonder well, how- I mean, let's first take, take a step back and remember that the, the economic circumstances that we talked about earlier in the show, uh, you know, that uh, extreme inequality, uh, monopoly power, political corruption. Well, it's no surprise that the same people uh, are, are feeling those same forces all over again uh, in their lives. And uh, it, they can see their, their you know, their economic, uh, uh, you know, their way of life being destroyed. If yeah. you go to any small town in Kansas and Missouri, you'll, right. you'll see it It's in your face. You know, the place is a ruin. I don't know about New Hampshire, but uh, basically almost anywhere in the former manufacturing yes. states of America, it's it, that's what it looks like. You know, you've got um, deindustrialization. You've got um, you know people working at these. Uh, you know, if they have jobs, it's these um, um, you know very precarious kind of. They don't get health care often, right. and they uh, you see opioid you know opioid epidemic, of course. Uh, and uh, they know that their lives are going nowhere. Even the ones who are still have have decent jobs, they know that life has passed them by, um, and they lash out. And the thing is, who is going who's going to speak for them? Right. And you know, is there going to be a reform movement that springs up that that will actually do something to improve their situation, or are you going to get uh, demagogues who come along and promise great things and never deliver and, and even uh, deliver something really dreadful? Well, the answer, as we all know, uh, the answer is the latter. You know, you've got uh, the Democrats aren't interested anymore. Uh, they say things like those jobs aren't coming. Rahm Emanuel just said this the other day, those jobs are never coming back. You know, nice going, Democrats. When you've got Democrats saying things like that, it is real easy for a charlatan confidence man like Donald Trump to step in and uh, make ridiculous promises and pretend to care. Remember, let's never forget that. He pretended to care about those people. At least he pretended. uh, Exactly. And and, uh, when you've got that, uh, as opposed to, say, a Hillary Clinton type of figure who, you know, is, is... all about you know writing policy prescriptions or whatever. I, I happen to think she would have made a better president. Oh, of course, than Trump. But well, yeah. But uh, uh, but but she could not persuade those people that she gave a damn about them. True. And you know, I I, I just I almost hate having this conversation again because I feel like our country 
is going in reverse and we can't learn any lessons. And we just chose a new president, you know, and he's, he's already squandered my hopes in him. I mean, we're just like a few weeks in and he's made it very clear that it's going to be the third term of Barack Obama. Hmm. And it's really, uh, it's really disheartening. The Democrats cannot learn the lesson and the Republicans are all too ready to say anything to, you know, to lead uh, the sort of the disillusioned and the outcast and, uh, you know, to lead them down this this sort of awful path, the paths of awfulness. Well, and, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I, I think this this rage against wearing masks, you know, it seems like this is part yeah. of the rage against elitism. And, you know, yep. 2016, the one thing people who listen to the show regularly hear me say, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. 2016 <laughs> offers many lessons. One of them is that, as you say, working class discontent hardly makes working class people deplorables. They got the impression yeah. that the Democratic Party saw them as inadequate. When working people were asked why they voted for Trump, one said, Clinton makes me feel bad about myself. Trump makes me feel good about myself. They they were I know basic politician skills there, you know? <laughs> really basic politics there. And uh, and the Democrats can't do that anymore. Well Biden I, I take that back. Joe Biden is actually he comes across as a kind of yeah. grandfatherly figure and people like him. Yes. But uh but that's no substitute for you know when the when when things are bad. That's no substitute for uh, you know for for actual policies that make a difference in people's lives. Look, people are desperate right now. Uh, the uh, you know that uh, with the, with the, with this pandemic and then with the shutdown, which has effectively destroyed you know so many businesses, um, you know restaurants, etc., all across America. This is it's a bad time. Yeah. And someone like Joe Biden has a unique and very understandable appeal. But that's not, you know, that's not going to last. Uh, you've got to deliver and you've got to deliver very quickly. I hope he does it. Yeah, I will see. I'll, get, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you know, it, we voted Trump out. I think he was Trump was voted in in 2016 because a lot of the working people rejected the elitism of, of Hillary Clinton. But now, yeah. you know, it's not so much, I think, that they voted for Biden, but but voted Trump out. But now is an opportunity, I would think, for us to to learn from it and to connect with it. And I got to tell you, in a recent postmortem with state leaders of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, where the party was dealt a surprisingly large loss up and down the ticket. I mean, New Hampshire did go for, for uh, Biden, but... We lost seats in the House and the Senate and the Executive Council. One person at this Zoom meeting suggested, well, we need to educate the masses. And I hope that that my, I I cringed at that. I hope it wasn't too obvious on the Zoom meeting. And vilifying Trump voters is pretty pervasive among Democrats, but scolding them? How does that play? What's what's your reaction to that approach? I mean, mean, what what you just described, I've heard that I've heard that a hundred times. Uh, a thousand times if I've heard it once. And it's, uh, you know, it's a way of, of, uh, you know, of brushing people off. You're not going to take them seriously. Uh, these people know what their, what their concerns are. Um, you know, everybody in this country could do with a little more education, including well, the, the quote unquote, highly educated. Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is a democracy. 
the people are the people, you know, and you can't say, I mean, there's this line that I, that I like from a poem by Bertolt Brecht. You can't say, let's dissolve the people and elect another. <laughs> it, it doesn't work that way. You don't get very far in a country like ours cursing, you know, cursing the people and saying they're not smart enough to understand your approach. That's just, it's just prima facie wrong. It's completely upside down. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah, it is. It, it, but I've, we've, we've all heard that so many times. It, basically what they're saying is those people need to become like me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then we can win elections. I and mean, just think how, how fruitless and, and, and self-serving and, and circular that is. It's what a pointless thing for a politician to say. And when people do that, when they scold them and say, oh, they're just, you know, it's them, those people. And you talk down to them and you think they're not particularly well educated. Well, maybe not. I mean, the Republicans have been voting against public education for years yeah. and years no, no, and years. That's right. But yep. Yep. Yes, somehow we have to connect with them by scolding them. It's not going to connect with them. I, and and yep. there are people, you know, there are people within the Democratic Party, specifically the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which says, oh, no, we've been portrayed as radical. We have to go away from that. Yeah. That's really. Yeah. But they, they always do that. That's it's, true. They do. That's always going to happen. But, but I'm, there's, there's this, a uh, representative, I'm not sure I'll pronounce this right, Jayapal of Washington, who's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She said, there's just no way forward for Democrats unless they confront the central challenges in American life. Running from these things is never going to work, she says. Yep, I'm afraid she's right. That is that is correct. Uh, you know, and, and calling voters names is, is not any way to, to deal with it, you know. Oh. Calling people deplorables. Oh, oh. my God. And, and, and you know, the, the funny thing is, Bert, is that when Hillary said that, she knew as soon as the words left her mouth that she'd made a blunder yeah. and she tried to get out of it. But what has amazed me is how many uh, pundits and liberals and Democratic politicians even uh, doubled down on that and said, no, that was exactly right. That was exactly the yep. right thing to say. Yep. The problem with, with with democracy is the people. Mm. <laughs> you know, that, they, that there's there's something wrong with them. Nothing yeah. wrong with what we're offering. The problem is the people. Whoa! Yeah, you're right. And people, I've heard people say, "Yeah, well, they are deplorable." But you know, it's, it's the people. We're supposed to be democracy. We... <laughs> no, it's a democracy. It's it, it, but here's the, the the really sad uh, punchline, Bert. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was, um, uh, you know, called the people a great beast, or supposedly called them that. It's not it, that quote is disputed, but he, okay. he said things. He, he had similar sentiments like that all the time. Oh, yeah. Kind of a famous, oh, yeah. famous episode. But he was a man of the of the right. Now they didn't use terms like right and left back then, but he was a man of you know uh, supported banks, supported business, uh, was about the you know the arist aristocrats of his day, the people who attacked populism in the 1890s on the same grounds were also uh, gentlemen of the right. Again, they didn't use that term then, but they were deeply, deeply conservative people uh, who, you know, supported uh, uh, laissez-faire economic mm -hmm. policies. You know, believed in Wall Street banks, believed in uh, private industry. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, th th believed in the gold standard. These are very, very conservative people. The people that challenged Franklin Roosevelt using the exact same arguments. Very, very conservative people, the, the, the people who owned uh, the biggest businesses in America in the 1930s, 
said things like that. Yeah. Who says things like that today? It's liberals. <sighs> and I, I, I just hate to, you know, break it to your audience, but that, it, you know, everybody that uses those arguments winds up on the, you know, the dust heap, the, you know, the trash heap of history. Had- that is not where, you know, that's not my kind of liberalism. And I hope it's not this country's kind of liberalism because that is a that is a recipe for for another Trump, uh, another disaster. And it could be a smarter Trump next time, which would be really dangerous. And you know, I, yeah. I it amazed me during the campaign that finally just ended. There were lawn signs, Trump supporters that, that urged people to vote for Trump and quote make a liberal cry again. Yes, yes. I mean, when they see liberal, yes. they, they mean I've seen those. Yeah. El- elitist, somebody who doesn't care about me or you, and uh, it's I t- entirely personal. It's 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 amazing how much this country hates liberals, and when you you know the, hates liberals as people, if you actually ask people about I don't know what what are some liberal policy right. suggestions, let's say universal health care, let's say. Uh, college is cheap again you know i don't know let's just try those yeah yeah and you and you propose those to to people and you say how do you feel about those they're overwhelmingly popular yes or how about you say everybody gets uh, a minimum everybody gets a, a living wage yeah everybody gets to be you know part of the great middle class society everybody gets decent housing what do you think of those things well those things are enormously popular Very well popular. those are liberal proposals but then when you say liberals they're like, ooh, uh, you know, there's this distaste because they think of them as these kind of um, martinets, these scolding, uh, you know, uh, sanctimonious people, uh, wealthy people from the suburbs who've been to fancy schools and who know better than everybody else right. uh, or who like to think they know better than everybody else. And there's there are uh, many, 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 uh, you know, examples or leading liberals to choose from. And uh, and it's it. You know, and so, yeah, they say things like, let's make the liberals cry again. You know, Uh, dreaming of that great day in 2016 when Donald Trump beat Hillary and all these poor people at Hillary's uh, 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 victory party (laughs) went home in tears. You know, this famous. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Episode. But, you know, it's just it's so um, uh, strange. It's personal. That's the payoff. That's all you get. You know, that's all you get from voting for Trump is 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 you get to make make liberals uh, mm. unhappy. Mm. <laughs> they didn't get much else. I, people somehow no, think that he did. Sure didn't. But, well, I well, I think the, the economy. I mean, let's, someday we're going to have to give the devil his due. He did. Um, he did have the economy basically roaring right up until right up into the COVID. And then it then it all fell to pieces. But wasn't but, that as measured? Know, he had he had a brief period where we were very close to full employment. Now I don't know if, if Trump should get the credit for that. I'm thinking, but, uh, but he, he, maybe I'm sorry. Go maybe ahead. the previous president does. I I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but one, yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, I find it interesting that from historical populists were for class-based political action across the color line. But what passes for populism today exhibits no-holds-barred racism, absolute racism. Yeah. How could... Yeah. I, I, it, I, How I does just the want... word get redefined? Yeah. Well... Exactly. Isn't that just a mystery? So, yeah, the populists were... Um, they weren't like racial liberals by present-day standards. They weren't like, you know, uh, enlightened, anti-racist 
you know, uh, you know, by present day standards. But they did believe in bringing uh, black voters together with yes. in the South. So yes. the South was a very agricultural region then, and they that's that was their sort of selling pitch to voters in the South. And at the time, yes. in a lot of Southern states, blacks could still vote. And the populace did make the sales pitch that black voters should sign up with populism mm-hmm. and join the white farmers. And if they got together, yes. they could, you know, they could advance their own interests. And uh, you can just imagine how this played yeah. uh, in the South. The, the sort of ruling elite of the South just came down on them like a ton of bricks. Uh, but it was a stories, uh, you know, and that's it, it's kind of a, it's, the story is too long to go into it uh, here. Let's just. I'll just say it didn't end well. Yeah. It ended in, in a colossal disaster. But it's important to remember that, and this is really important, Bert, and, and I think it's important for people to get their, their minds around it, that at certain times in our history, it hasn't been the highly educated, affluent, uh, professional class that is uh, the, the anti-racist force in society. It's been, uh, you know, uh, working class people. Yes. I think of the 1930s and there was a, you know, the labor organizing organization known as the CIO, mm-hmm. the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And their whole idea was that they would organize anybody. They would, you know, the, the AFL, which had preceded them, would only organize uh, skilled workers, you know, usually in, right. in certain crafts. But the CIO said, no, we'll organize steel workers, we'll organize uh, auto workers, we'll organize anybody, uh, black as well as white, uh, people from any, you know, immigrants as well as native born, we'll organize anybody. And the leaders of the CIO were all either immigrants or children of immigrants, and they swept the country. And I quote from a lot of their uh, their materials that they that they published in the 30s and 40s, and these guys were quite radical. Uh, I mean, they were way beyond the sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of right thinking, um, you know, nice, affluent, white collar people of the day. Uh, and so there are times in history when that's the case. And it's this is just as I talk about this book and the lessons of the populist tradition for people, uh, modern day uh, listeners, modern day readers have a lot of trouble understanding that they can't believe that there was a time when it wasn't people like them who were the most enlightened, you know, members of society. Well, as I say, we don't learn from history. And, and you talk about the CIO. You mentioned in the book something I attended and, and I thought was very significant, but it, it got virtually no national attention. There was an enormous AFL and CIO Solidarity Day rally at the National Mall in 1981. It was huge. The fact that it got virtually no attention bothered me greatly. Why was that ignored, do you think? And I, I thought it was very significant. It is significant, and it's in, in, significant in its absence. Yeah. It's never talked about. This is one of the biggest. So there's somebody keeps a record of the biggest marches on Washington, and that's either uh, the biggest or like the second biggest or something like that. It's, it, it was enormous. So what? And uh, yeah. what, what happened? Well, so what, here's the thing. So I don't I didn't really go into that. I don't know how it was covered in the press at the time in 1981. But I do uh, I do know. uh, So I spent a lot of time in the book describing the way present day liberals think about the past of their own movement. And they've basically, um, well, deleted 
organized labor from that from that history. Yes, they've deleted. You know, so if you go back and read old histories of the progressive movement and you know the rise of reform, the great history of reform, it's all about labor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about you know here are these first few glimpses of how how to organize these people and these people were working in a factory and these you know, skilled workers here and, you know, whatever, the Molly Maguires and the populists and the Farmers Alliance. And, you know, this is what uh, this is. This is what used to constitute sort of the history of progressivism in America. You know, that was a big part of the story. Today, there's all of these different people writing histories of, of the progressive movement in America, and they leave that stuff out. Yeah. And there's all of these different versions of it, but they always leave labor out. And what struck me was there's a video that the New Yorker magazine put together. It's a, a, a visual history of protest in America, a video history of protest in America, with a strong emphasis on uh, protests in Washington, D.C., marches mm-hmm. on Washington. Mm-hmm. And they leave labor completely out oh of it. God. They also leave farmers completely out of it. I mean, there's been some big farm pro just in our lifetime. Oh, yeah huge farm protests in Washington. That's completely left out of it. And when I saw this, I thought, well, that's weird. You know, what What the hell happened? How is there that omission? Yeah. And I started looking around, and you notice this everywhere. Uh, there's these, uh, I'll give you another example, one that uh, probably every one of your listeners is familiar with. There's yard signs that you see in affluent neighborhoods, liberal neighborhoods, that try to list every liberal cause on one sign. Oh yeah, you know, and it says I've seen it says in this house we believe um, women's rights are human rights. No person is illegal. Uh, science is real. Mm-hmm. You know, and they keep adding they keep adding line items to it. The, the, the latest one says water is life, and uh, I've seen a couple different iterations of these signs, and there's always something missing from them, which is any mention of economic grievance. You know, it says nothing about every job should be a middle class job or every wage should be a living wage or, you know, uh, the, the minimum wage should be 50. Even something as basic as the minimum wage should be $15 an hour. That's amazing. It, none of that is mentioned. It's just not part of it, it, these sort of affluent suburban liberals when they go to think about where liberalism came from. It doesn't even occur to them that that the labor movement is part of that story. Yeah, cultural issues, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, you know. Yeah. All things I agree with. Oh, absolutely. But I'm on board with. they're yeah. also, I mean, farm and labor, you know, that used to be the backbone of a uh, populist movement. And one of my favorite yep. populists yep. of all time, Fred Harris, in his 1976 yeah. he was senator from Oklahoma. He was uh, back in, when Oklahoma used to have Democrats. Oh my God! I know, a long time ago. Uh, he he wanted he wanted to dem- democratize the economy and foreign policy. And after so many, yes. this is I think yeah. an area where we could perhaps touch on that and and make some progress. After so many failed elite-driven wars against terrorism, which have failed. I would think democratizing foreign policy would have great appeal, and I think it's what our founders intended. Is it, you know that doesn't come up very often, but foreign policy people are you know going and dying on this stuff, and uh, I would think yeah. there's a lot of stuff that could connect with average working class people. I would think. Oh my God, yes. Well, Fred Harris is he's he's one of the great, and he's still yes. around. Oh right? yes, he's one of the, the the truly great 
figure, political figures of our time, senator from Oklahoma, yes, uh, very liberal Democrat back when Oklahoma used to have people like – Oklahoma was a strong populist uh, yes. state. It wasn't a state yet, but it, it became one later. Right. And uh, uh, he then um, – you know, after the late 60s, everything sort of fell apart for the Democratic Party. Uh, Fred Harris sat down and, I mean, very unusual, sat down and tried to figure out what the Democratic Party should do, what it should make of itself, and came to the exact opposite conclusion of the sort of Bill Clintons, yes. uh, that the Bill Clintons of the world were, were coming to. And he said the Democratic Party should become more populist, not less we should double down on our New Deal heritage. We should try to bring in more working class people, you know, and, uh, you know, reach out to these people who are leaving the Democratic Party yes. for the Republicans. And that was his advice. And he then he tried to um, turn it into reality by running for president himself. And he had this kind of spectacular low budget campaign <laughs> where he did all of these, you know, these things like he drove around the country in a Winnebago and mm-hmm. he had his, his, his followers, uh, uh, like would hold bake sales and stuff like this. It was very, it was proto Bernie Sanders. You know, Bernie Sanders with his what is it, the twenty seven dollars <laughs> campaign donation. And it was, it was, it was that sort of thing before, uh, before the internet. And it was like uh, ins- he didn't, he didn't in- win. Inst- no, he didn't win. Well, he said the reason he didn't win is because he was for the little people and they couldn't quite reach the balloting. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't reach the world. That's right. Yeah, but he was That's like, typical. He made a, he made a joke out of it. Oh, uh, yeah. he was he was he's, he's terrific. I've had him on the show. I'll have him again. I think, and he's sort of similar to uh, Paul Wellstone from what was the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. He went around on a cheap bus yeah. too. Yeah, one another thing, great man, another hero. Yes. It, what I, one thing I think that's important to get is that the Democratic Party went all out against Republican Susan Collins of Maine. Sarah Gideon was expected to win, but rural Maine chafed at all the outside money pouring in. They insisted the choice be theirs, and they reelected Republican Susan Collins by a wide margin. She apparently was more attuned to the ordinary Mainer. I'm wondering if that might happen again in the special election in Georgia, you know, p- coming in from the top down. What What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I don't I haven't really followed it and I don't really know. I mean, you've got, um, you know, these republic. I, I look, I'm not a just coming in from the top. You I don't know? really I don't really like I don't really like. Yes, I know. I know. And I don't really like Republicans is the thing. And uh, well, yeah. <laughs> and these Republicans <laughs> they've got out there in Georgia are, are these are particularly uh, distasteful people. But yeah, when you, you pour in all of this outside money and you run some, you know, uh, technocrat, uh, that's never a great recipe. What the Democrats have, have, what they've lost sight of, Bert, is that when Franklin Roosevelt was president, and remember he won four terms and Harry Truman, yes. his vice president, won a fifth. Uh, Roosevelt was not, he didn't win again and again and again because he had more campaign donations than yeah. the other guy. The Republicans always outspent him, massively outspent him, and also had all the newspapers of America on their side, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Roosevelt won because he had more, because he had people, uh, you know, because he had the numbers, because it, it, he was a Democrat. And we've totally lost sight of that these days. We're, we're, we're coming back around, and I think appropriately so, because we're, yeah. we're coming up to an hour here. We're coming back around to the question that we began with which is, as we're sitting here talking, the two parties are basically changing, they're swapping their positions. You know, when I first started writing about politics in the early 2000s, 
uh, is that when it was? Yeah, that is that is when it was. There was no question, but that the Republicans were the party of big business. Yes, you know the party of money. Yeah, you know they routinely outraised and outspent the Democrats always. Uh, you know, there was no area in which, you know, except for maybe, well, I mean, the Democrats were competitive in some in some places, but but not really. I mean, it was still it was still at the time it was clear who was who. And George W. Yeah. Bush, you know, that remained very clear. Well, today you look at yeah, the yeah. wealthy suburb, the wealthy, um, highly educated suburbs in America, and they have completely flipped yep. from the in the days of Reagan. They were entirely Republican. Today they are entirely Democratic. Uh, the suburb I grew up in. You remember my book, "What's the Matter with Kansas?" Yeah, it's about a it's about a a, a very Republican state, Kansas, obviously, where I grew up. And the county that I grew up in is a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. That's in Kansas, yeah. called Johnson County. It's um, the most affluent county in um, Kansas. The most highly educated. Uh, it's you know a lot of professionals. All the people that lived around me when I was a kid were professionals. And I thought of it when I was growing up as one of the most Republican places in the country. Uh, and it was. I mean, that was objectively true. They hadn't voted for a, de- for a, a Democrat since Woodrow Wilson in 1916. And uh, uh, guess what just happened? Uh, Biden just won it. So first Democrat wow. to win that county since 1960, over a hundred, over a century of being solidly, solidly Republican. And now they just flipped. And this is happening Everywhere. Orange County, California is the Ooh. one that blew my mind. Hillary, Hillary won that. You know, that's where Ronald Reagan was from. Sure. That's where uh, Richard Nixon was from. Yeah. The, the John Birch Society started there. Oh, right. It was big there, I mean. And now uh, and now it's um, Hillary country. Now it's, now it's Democrats. Now it's blue. The world is, mm. is, is upside down, my friend. Well, we have to reach out to people in the middle, working people in those neighborhoods that you know darn well. You know, if you see people with lower incomes, the chances are they're going to be Republican, which is amazing. The question you asked that we're not going to be able to answer, but I think maybe the people can, is for whom does America exist? That's what we need. It, sh- it should be about the people, and it can be, once again, if we can possibly reconnect with people. Don't scold them. Don't talk down to them. Don't look down your noses at working people. Uh, we can, if we involve populism and, and make it work, it's worked before, it can work again, but I'm not sure the Democratic Party is ready to listen to it. Ah, but we can do it, and as someone said, I wish I knew the source of this quote, Protest and politics, both necessary, neither sufficient. We can make it yeah. happen. We can make it happen. The book is The People Know, the author Thomas Frank, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Thank you so much for being with us today. Bert, great conversation. Thank you for having me. People get There's a train of Get on board All you need is faith To hear the diesel's humming Don't need no ticket You just think